on verse 4 of John chapter 17. And some of them, and I'm in Acts, how about that? Don't start that on me yet, bro. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. I feel your presence. I feel your prayers. I'm so grateful uh, for those of you. I know this is a church that loves the word and loves the Lord. And I'm just so glad to be a part of what God, what God is doing. Amen. Amen. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given to me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the word which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And finally, verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world but for those who you have given to me, for they are yours. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Amen, church. Amen. As we continue our series entitled Disciple Shift, uh, this is the second installment of that series of messages that I'm on assignment to give to you share with you about a farmer uh, who went out to his field to gather cows before the storm that was announced by meteorologists. On the way, he noticed a fence that needed mending. He had intended to fix the fence a long time ago. The farmer realized that any big storm would blow the fence away if he didn't fix it. So he went to the barn to get some tools. When he got to the barn, he saw that the tools were all over the place. He had left them out when he had last used the tools. So he decided to reorganize the tools in the box. Then he remembered that he had left the hammer inside of the house. So before he finished reorganizing the tools, the farmer decided to get the hammer. On the way to the house, he noticed a garbage can that had not been taken out. Since it was trash day, the farmer decided to take the trash cans out. And he carried two of the four trash cans to the curb for pickup. And as he was doing that, he noticed a newspaper on the ground. And so he picked the newspaper off the ground, and the headlines caught his attention. So he decided, hmm, let me just sit down in my easy chair and read the headlines, it's one article, and then I'll go back to picking up, fixing the barn, organizing the tools, taking the rest of the trash out, and taking the hammer to take care of whatever. And by the time he woke up, 
The storm had already come. All of the cows were gone. The fence had blown away. The trash was on, on the ground. And the tools were still unorganized. At the end of this man's day, he could easily say, like many of us, he did a whole lot of things. But he didn't finish he did not execute the main assignment. What he started out to do, he never finished. And I want to suggest to you that, unfortunately, this illustration that I've just shared describes the lives of far too many of us that we have our hands in so many things, only to find at the end of a day, an end of a month, the end of a year, an end of a decade, end of 20 years, many of those things that we started are, are still undone. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the church an assignment. The Lord's mandate is clearly stated in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and the essence of those verses is go make disciples. He didn't say go make Christians, go make church members. He says go and make disciples. He commanded his followers to go, to go. And the apostle Paul captured that same idea as he was spending his last days in a death row cell as he uttered the words in chapter uh, 4 of 2 Timothy where he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. And he talked about what he had completed. But before he says what he completed, he says to Timothy in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of, of an evangelist. And then he says this, this powerful, gives this powerful charge. He says, fulfill, complete, execute your God-given ministry. Execute your assignment. In order to fulfill your ministry, it demands that you obey the command. Make disciples. Any assignment that God has given you, no matter what direction you go in, the, when it is said, when, when, the, when you've actually finished the course and run your race and fought the good fight, it will involve, from God's perspective, the question, did you go? Did you make disciples? As the life of our Lord Jesus Christ in physical form was winding down, he was now down to 24 hours left in his life. And he assembles his 12 disciples, one of which was a devil. His name was Judas. And they are gathered in the upper room where we're told that he instituted the first communion service. In John chapter 13 through chapter 16, you have the upper room discourse. And then we're ushered into chapter 17, just before Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's turned over to the guards of the high priest and then later executed on the cross. But what was profound to me as Christ knew that he's down to 24 hours of life on this earth is what 
captured Jesus' focus. The two things that were most important to Jesus was his 12 disciples and talking to his heavenly father in prayer. The most powerful prayer recorded in the entire Bible is in John chapter 17. First, Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and then at the end of the chapter, he prays for us. We were on his mind. He was facing the cross. He was soon to die. But first and foremost in his thinking was you and me, his disciples. Now, the interesting thing about Christ in verse 4 of chapter 17, we're going to learn three things. First of all, we're going to learn that Christ completed his assignment. Say, Christ completed his assignment. That's in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. We're going to also learn that completing, completing the assignment of making disciples is a lifetime job. It's a lifetime job. And there's no unemployment. There's no vacations. There's no excuse for being an MIA. And finally, we're going to learn that completing the assignment as a disciple maker requires four essential things, four essential things. Four things need to be true if we're going to finish our assignment, if you're going to fulfill your ministry. You don't need to be waving your hands in the dark. You don't need to be unsure about what it is that God would have you to do. He said, go and make disciples. Now, the uniqueness of your gifts is going to determine who you encounter, who you can influence, what spheres of opportunities you will have. But when everything is said and done, it's still going to reduced down to those two things. Go make disciples. Somebody say amen. amen. Jesus completed his assignment. Listen to verse 4 of chapter 17. The Bible says, and I have, Jesus speaking, glorified you on earth. I've made you shine. I've bragged about you. I have made you the focal point of the ministry. He says, and he says, on earth, I have finished the work which you have given to me to do. Now, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. We know that it was on the cross, the sixth of the seven last words that Jesus uttered. He said, it is finished. Tell to let's die. It is finished. And when he said, it is finished, he wasn't saying, I'm finished, but the work of redemption, the work of seeking and saving the lost, the work that made salvation available to all, it's finished. The perfect lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. He that knew no sin who became sin for us. He said, it's finished. I've done it. It's complete my assignment. But when Jesus utters these words in verse 4, it is finished. He's not talking about the work of the cross. He's talking about something else. He says, first of all, there are four things that Jesus, five things that Jesus did that had to do with work that would be, work that was his assignment that he completed. First of all, he says, I have manifested who you are. I have manifested who God is to those who you gave me. I have manifested you to those who you have given to me. I like the way the Message Bible puts it. He says, I have spelled out your character in detail to men and women you gave me. They were, your, they were yours in the first place. He said, so this wasn't a class in a Bible college. This wasn't 
Theology 101, 101 in seminary. He said, I have manifested you. I have disclosed you. I have pulled the covers off. I have illuminated and, and caused those who would not otherwise know what your nature and your character, what God is like. He says, when I was here, I finished my work with those you gave me by showing them what you're like, what you're like. I didn't give them a picture. I didn't show them something on Facebook. I, I, I didn't send them a photo album. But what I did, I displayed in my actions before them exactly what you are and, and, what you, and who you are like in such a way that now they have no doubt about what God is like in terms of his character. He says, I finished that part of my assignment. I made known what you're like and who you are. But notice how he does that in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. You don't have to turn there. But what he did, he said, they are yours, that you gave them to me. What Jesus says, the way I made you known, the way I pulled the covers back, the way I unwrapped this thing, the way we got down to the core of who you are essentially, who you're, who the, who the, who, what, what you are in, in your total purest essence. He said, I picked out picked out to follow me, I picked out those you had preordained to follow me. He said, I picked those who you preordained to follow me. Is that clear? So listen to what the word says. Just as you chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that, he should be, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption, as God, as, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, we're not going to unpack all that, but what you want to know is that before you knew that there was a you, before you and I were formed in our mother's womb, God had predetermined in his foreknowledge that's, that lets us know that God, by nature, is all-knowing. He, by his grace, predetermined who he would choose. And those who he decided that he would choose, Jesus says, those are the ones who I selected. And so he said, I picked you. The ones that I manifested what God is like, I picked you. You're handpicked by the sovereignty, by the grace, by the mercy and the love of God. So not only did I pick you, I pursued you because there's none righteous, no, not one. You all are like sheep. We were all, no one was searching for God. We were not seeking for God. We were like open sepulchers, open graves with rotting corpses. We were not seeking God because all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. But even while we were falling short of the glory of God, the Bible said God demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. And so he says, not only did I pick you according to God's predetermined selection, I pursued you. I drew you to myself. I found Peter, and I found Andrew, and I called, I pursued us. We didn't love him first. He loved you and I first. We weren't searching and searching until he, we found him. No, he was never lost. We, he found us. That's a crazy love. He kept on looking for you and me. And then, not only did he pick us and pursue us, but he proclaimed the good news of salvation 
That's how he manifested God to us. He proclaimed, Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus said, I selected you. I, I, I picked you. I selected pursued you, but I also proclaim. So there comes a time in order for you, the light to come on for you, the, the, the blind scales to come off our eyes to see what God is really like, you need to be saved. Jesus said in his word to Nicodemus, a very religious guy, he said, except the men be born again, born a second time, born from above, born of the spirit, you cannot see, you cannot comprehend, you will never know what God is like and who he is until you have experienced the new birth. And so he says, I reveal God to them by pursuing them, by picking them, by proclaiming. But he said also by practicing godliness. They saw God on display. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 15 and 16, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, our infirmities, but Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, what, what? Without sin. Therefore, he said, come boldly. Amen. Amen. And so he says, I practice godliness. I was tempted, but I didn't yield. You saw God in his perfection because when I was tempted like you were tempted, I didn't succumb. So he said, I practice godliness in front of you. And then finally, he performed supernatural miracles. The miracles weren't about getting a big crowd. Many times Jesus performed miracles that don't tell anybody. And of course, we say we're not going to tell anybody when the Lord resurrects you, when the Lord heals you, when the Lord puts food on your table, when the Lord puts a roof over your head, when the Lord gives you soundness of mind, when the Lord allows you to go to work every day, when you find yourself in a car that you know you shouldn't have, a promotion you didn't earn. I said I wouldn't tell nobody, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't keep it to myself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And then Philip said, but Jesus, uh, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you this long? When you see God, when you see me, you see the Father. Now, let me help you to understand this. Again, this is not theology 101. This is not no textbook learning. He says, when you see me, you see the Father. How do you know? He says, don't believe it, it just what I say, but for the evidence, the work, the work. So he said, I manifested the Father. I clean, completed the assignment. That part of the assignment, I have revealed to my followers what God is like and who he is. Some of you are aware of... Uh, and maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself. Uh, Jesus also, here's another thing. He says, the disciples obey your word. In verse 8, he says, I have taught them your word. So I've revealed who you are to them, but I've also taught them their word. And this was not just, again, head knowledge. Being a, being a hearer only, the Bible says, so Jesus said in verse 8, that they are doing the word. And so the people that Jesus came to, was assigned and given by God. He said, they know what God is like, and the proof of that is they're obeying God. They're obeying his word. So he said, I taught him, I taught him the word. So he taught him the word. He equipped them to be students of the word. The Bible says, study to show yourself what? Workmen. Unto, approved unto God. Thank you. 
workmen who need not be ashamed, what? Cutting straight the word of God. Jesus said, I've taught them how to cut straight. I've taught them how to feed themselves. They were like newborn babes who desire, who crave the sincere milk of the word, that they may grow thereby. You grow through the word, through your personal study of the word. He said, I've taught them, and they've applied it. They meditated on it. They talked about it, and they've obeyed it. And now the success of, of, of the proof of that is that they're living according to what they've been taught. I finished the work, Jesus said, and then he says, I taught them that everything comes from you. Everything that I've given them that comes through me has come through me, through you. And so he says, I've taught them dependency. They know how to come to you because everything that they need, you got it. Nothing shall be impossible with you. We have not because we ask not. If any man lack wisdom, but said, let him ask of God who giveth to all men what liberally and he abradeth not. He said, if any of you lack wisdom, any of you lack wisdom, all things shall be possible with the Lord if we pray because the fervent effectual prayers of the righteous have great benefit with God. Amen? And so he said, everything, I've taught them that everything through me that they have received comes from you. What he's saying is that if they want to get what I got, they got to come to, through me to you. That's dependency. He taught them how to pray. He taught them how to study the word and obey the word. He taught them what God is and what God is like. He also said, you surely know who I am and that I've come from the Father and that I am of the Father. He taught them his true identity. Do you really know who the Jesus of the Bible is? Do you really believe his report? Do you believe that he was rejected and despised of men? Not because he performed miracles, but because he declared that I and the Father are one. Do you, do you, do you receive that Jesus, the one who said the word, where it says the word tabernacled among us and he became flesh and we beheld the glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, that Jesus is both God and man in human human form. He's the hypostatic unit. He is very God and very man. He both God and man at the same time. He could die on the cross as man, but never die as God. He taught them his identity. And then he taught them about divine authority. He says, those who you've given to me, they're yours. That means that he taught them that they were God's property. How did they become God's property? From Jesus' perspective, we were brought with a price through the precious blood of Jesus. He died for us, and through his death, he paid the price, counseling out our sin debt, past, present, and future. It doesn't matter what you've done. And so he taught them divine authority, and then he said, it's finished. What Jesus was saying is the reason I could declare tell to die before I go to the cross is because the job that I came to do is make disciples. And how do you know when you made a disciple? When you raised up someone to know who God is and what God is like, when you taught them the word and they're obeying the word, when they know that they are dependent on God because everything that they need comes from God and they're praying to God and they know the identity of Jesus and that they own, you've made disciples and now they can make disciples. If Jesus hadn't finished that part of the job, none of us would be saved today. 
If he hadn't left disciples who could make disciples, we wouldn't be saved because no one would have been there to tell us. I can come back to glory now. I can return to my father because the work that you sent me to do to make disciples, to build my church, the church can now be built because there are people who've been taught that can reach others and teach them the things that I've commanded them. Does that make sense? Jesus came to make disciples. Some of you heard the, the story about the lady, uh, uh, I think this happened in Texas, 20, uh, a marathon, 26-mile race, and it uh, was for all women. And women and men, when they do the marathon, they do not finish at the same time. Men normally uh, finish quicker, uh, and, and uh, the timing will be therefore different. Uh, whoever ends up winning the race, it's usually a Kenyan who wins the race, but somebody from Africa. Uh, and uh, anyway, a woman, and I forget her name, but I've actually shared this story before. She, run, she, she ran the marathon in record-breaking time. She broke the, not only the woman's record, but she broke the men's record as well. And this made front page news. Woman breaks men's record, all time speed, marathon race. She got the awards, she got the money, she got the recognition, she got the interviews, until three days later, the officials looked at the film. And what they discovered, they wondered why she didn't have, hadn't broken a sweat. Well, she jumped in the race two miles before the end of the race. And then she ran through the ticker tape and celebrated and collapsed like she had run 26 miles and an assistant had only run two miles. I want you to know that there are too many Christians who are like that. We're, we're comfortable. We want the accolade. We want the crowd. We want the celebration. You know, the crown. We want everything. Oh, I came to church today. Aren't you proud of me, Jesus? I even have a Bible today. Ain't you proud of me, Jesus? I found it. I've been lost for a couple of weeks, but I finally found it. Aren't you proud of me, Jesus? Give us a photo op. But I want you to know until you run your race, until you fought your good fight, until you kept the faith, until you have become not only a disciple of Jesus, but are a disciple maker, you will not hear the Lord say, well done. Let me add, you might get in and he may even say well done, but you won't get any rewards. Jesus said, I finished the work. How come most Christians are going to go to their graves without ever having led a person to Christ? How is it that people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, if you go down the row of pews, what is the gospel? They can't even tell you what it is. How is it that we who say we love the Lord and we're concerned about souls because Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if you gain everything that the world has to offer, but you lose your eternal soul? We say we love what God loves, but we're not praying for the lost. We're not telling them about Christ. Jesus said, I finished the work. The work that he gave 
he came into the world to complete was to make disciples so that the church, that he said, the gates of hell will not prevail. My church will stand. Why is it standing? Because Jesus made disciples. Here's another uh, thought. Completing assignment of disciple making is a lifetime job. One of the most dangerous things that can happen to a Christian, and this, this angers me to no end. Yeah. You're not an expert because you learned a couple Bible verses. Amen. No more than you are a surgeon. Amen. When it comes to politics and religion, unless the pastor's climbing on the cross, he, somehow he's on the same level. If I'm on the same level as you, you're at the wrong church. You really are, because I have nothing to offer you. But this, didn't, this doesn't come by osmosis. It doesn't just drop out of the sky and all of a sudden you get it. Just like doctors have to study and go through arduous, arduous training. And we value that. Why do we devalue spiritual instruction? Here's another thing. You never stop growing and needing to grow. Let me, let me, let me, let me jump into this. This is the word. Here's what in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the church will be edified and build up for the edification of the church, for the equipping of the church and the edification of the church. And he, then he explains, this is discipleship in a nutshell. Here it is. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith. Here's how long this thing lasts. Until we all come into a unity, a oneness, a sameness of mind in the faith. Now, here's the deep thing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, it says, there's one faith, one baptism, one father, one son, and we all are one. We have unity positionally. We all the same family. We look different, but if you have Jesus, you're my family, part of the body of Christ. But then he says in the very next verse, strive with everything you have to maintain, to sustain the unity. That's the very thing that the devil attacks in the church because a house that is divided against itself. The devil loves coming to church as a sower of discord. And so he says the first thing that needs to happen and to reach all of us, that means the person that's sitting the furthest in the back, if you're a believer, all of us have to get to a place where we are in unity, where we're saying the same thing. How can you be in unity? I like black, you like red. No, you're not talking about colors of clothes and where you shop and where you go to where you enjoy vacationing. He's talking about having the sameness of mind about making disciples. We can agree on that. And if what I'm about isn't in some way directing me towards telling somebody about Jesus and helping them see the light of Christ reflected through me, then maybe you ought to be changing your course of action because that's not the purpose for which the Lord placed us on the earth. The Bible says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. That doesn't mean we can't have a good time because Jesus, I come to give you what? Life and to give you more life more, but we can enjoy life. But I don't get to put my Christian card down while I'm enjoying life. He said, until we come to the fullness of uh, unity and faith, and he says, in the, and in the knowledge of the Son of God. What that means is not, it's not, that's not the word gnosis, intellectual. He says, epigenosis. 
until we reach a, a full level of intimacy with God, that God becomes a, the, the lover of your soul. He is already that, but you love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind. With all, he's saying until we reach a knowledge experientially in our intimacy with God, that that's a unified experience in the church. He said, we got work to do. You need to come to Bible study. You need to be fellowship with other Christians. You need to have somebody that you're accountable to because we're trying to reach that level of intimacy with Christ where we love him so much that what hurts him hurts us. What makes him laugh makes us laugh. Somebody say amen. amen. And he said, become, become mature. What's a mature Christian? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details. There's a natural man, the cardinal man, the spiritual man, the backslider. And there's, there's a... <clears throat> Varying degrees of how carnal somebody is and how, et cetera. But the spiritual man is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He said he discerns all things, but is not understood by any. People that are spiritual are peculiar to carnal-minded Christians. Because Hebrews chapter 5 says, because they have learned to have their thoughts exercised through the word of God, so that they can discern good from evil, that they have become over time victorious over areas on a consistent basis where they're walking in obedience to the Lord because they can discern through the spirit good and evil. A mature Christian is a grown-up Christian who's growing up in Christ until we get the glory. Because he who began a good work, he, we still under construction. We still got some miles to travel. We still need to grow in Christ. Somebody say amen. Until we reach spiritual maturity. Maturity is not having all the right answers. And that's where we, we go about teaching to tell people what we know. Oh, we want to tell people what we do. I, I don't need to let you know what I know. I want to know what you know and how you're obeying the Lord. And that's what a discipleship process is about. You still with me? Here's the final thing. Until you no longer are infants tossed to and fro by every false doctrine, sitting at everybody's table, going to everybody's church, I know it's Black History Month, and, it's, and next week it'll be Italian, Jew, and whatever month. But if something's going on and Christ is left out at the door, that's not where you want to be. You don't want to be taking demons home with you, false doctrine. The Bible actually says these, these teachings come from the very pit of hell. But as I'm maturing in Christ and coming to a full place of unity in him and the knowledge of intimacy in him, I will not be easily deceived yeah. by false teaching. Some of you saw the news I was watching it the other day where uh, equipment manager who had Down syndrome and uh, he, he, his greatest dream was to play basketball. And he, he was equipment manager, got the water, and he got the towels. That was his job, to pick up the towels, give the water. And then one day, the host decided to give him a uniform and to allow him to play one uh, and, and a part of the half in the basketball game. So they put him on, and, and everybody was just, whoa, why did he, he put him on? He, and so everybody was kind of in on the, the, uh, the opposing team, the, the home team. And so he, they called a play for, the, for this Down syndrome young man. He dribbled, and he shot the ball, and he made the basket. And everybody in the stadium just went berserk. I mean, they were yelling. They were celebrating. They were so excited. And they, after, the court, after the game was over, they all rushed the court. Even though they lost the game, they just rushed the court, hoisted this little guy in there. 
that down certain guy was us. We don't belong on Jesus' team. We don't have no skills. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. What we really deserved was not just a place on the bench with towels and water. We deserved eternal separation from God. But by his mercy and his grace, he has quickened us by his spirit. And he didn't call us to sit on the bench. He called us to participate in the game. And every time somebody gets saved, a basket is scored. And every angel in heaven rejoices. That the one that was once lost is now found. Completing assignment as a disciple maker requires four things that you need to be stripped of. When you get a chance to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62, you're going to discover these things that occur. Jesus is making his way towards a countdown leading to Calvary. He's got you on his mind, and he has me on his mind. He knows that to take the responsibility for our sin means that he will experience something that he never experienced from eternity into the present experience. He will be separated from God because he will be bearing the sins of the world as our atonement. And so, in order to do that, the Bible says that he prayed three times, Lord, if it be possible, Lord, if it be possible, Lord, if it be. he prayed, showing us the way to get prepared for testing is through prayer. But before he gets there, he tells the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over into the hands of cruel men, and they're thinking, oh, yeah, time to cash in. And, and this is not Las Vegas, but they, they, Jesus is, the, is the, uh, cashing in. And so the Bible says he heard them arguing about who is going to be the greatest. Who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand? And the argument was so contentious, I can't imagine that Peter wasn't about to throw blows. With Jesus in church. And Jesus said, what are you guys talking about? And they got silent. Jesus, the Bible said he knew their thoughts. And he said to them in response, here's what, here's what we need to be stripped of if you're ever going to be an effective disciple of Christ. Well, you're not trying to disciple people to you. Loyalty to you. He said the least in the kingdom will be the greatest. So you need to be stripped of a superiority spirit. We're not better than anybody. But for the grace of God, so go I. I don't need to be in charge. I don't need to be up front. I don't need the credit. I'm just doing my assignment. And when I'm gone, when I'm dead in my grave, in glory, the work of Jesus will continue without me. The Lord doesn't need you or me. But praise be to God. In his great counsel of wisdom, he decided to use you and me. So that he, when people look at us, they got to say, there must be a God. There's no way that he's winning the world through this army. The spirit of pride. You can't be full of yourself and really bless anybody else because they can't see Jesus. Oh, it breaks my heart. We just want to be seen. That's why there's this proliferation of the social media. 
with, with, with Facebook and, and, and uh, Twitter. We want somebody, look at me, please. Let me. I'm important, and if you don't, I'll just start, I'll recreate my profile and lie about this, show a picture of how I looked 50 years ago with a lot of technological alterations. Pride. We're so busy patting each other on the back at church, high-fiving, Mother's Day, Dog's Day, Cat's Day, Carpet Day, Light Day. Big car day, little car day. Jesus said, if you don't come to me like a little child, you're not worthy. And here, I'm just going to tell you, I'm the spirit of the Lord. I'm calling it out. If you in you, I'm, t I'm not sitting and listening to nonsense. And you in your flesh, that's not the spirit of this church. So you, when you check in these doors, leave your ego at the door. Don't make the work of God hard because somebody else, the right person didn't tell you. I didn't like her. And I, that's pride. That's division. Let me move on. Can, can, can we go a little further? And then Jesus' disciples in verses 49 and 50, they say, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we forbid him because he does not follow us. He don't go to New Direction. He ain't Baptist. He ain't Episcopalian. He ain't a part of our denomination. He's not a part of our clique. He's not our friend. And so we saw them casting out demons, delivering people, blessing folks, and snatching the hands of Satan off of their lives. We got a problem with that unless they join our church and my pastor, my bishop is telling them what to do. It can't be of God. That's the spirit of sectarianism. We call it division. Clicks in the church. Paul said, did I die for you? Did anybody that you've given your undying loyalty in the church above Christ and the body of Christ? I used to uh, watch Dr. Vaughn. And I never knew where she was going to be. One Sunday, she's over there. Next Sunday, she's over there. And I'm saying, I'm loving this. She's, she's, she's just making her rounds. You don't have no designated seat. Ain't nobody up here with me. <laughs> well, it sure be nice if you had a couple preachers. No, it wouldn't, because I'm like them. When they're preaching, I'm, I got my, my plate, my spoon, my bib. I'm trying to be fair. I ain't trying to be seen. I'm not saying everybody that sits up and whoop is trying to be seen, but we ain't going to have that problem. The ministers should sit together. Oh, yeah, that might not be a bad day. And we do that on communion. We're all together, deacons. But we, we want to give a spirit, a spirit of humility, not sectarianism. Yes. He says, don't forbid, don't curse what God is blessing. We can all be great in the Lord. I'm not going to give one person a great uh, applause. I'm going to applaud everybody. Somebody say amen. We're on the same team. We're co-laborers, not competitors. When I succeed, you succeed. 
When my right foot is working right, my left foot doesn't have to work as hard. When my right right arm goes up, oh, God, thank you that the body parts are working today. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I get home, but I tell you. <laughs> In verses 51 through 56, when you get a chance, Jesus sends his disciples to the city of Samaria. He said, find me a place to stay and see if someone will open up their home. When the disciples get there, the people say, we don't want Jesus here. No Jesus. And the disciples go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, do you know you're not welcome at New Direction? Do you know that you're not welcome at, you're not welcome at certain people's homes? Can we pray down fire like Elijah on them? Can we smoke some of these jokers? And Jesus says, no spirit of search and destroy. No pharisaical take the earrings off. Your dress is too short. You don't wear this, and you need to wear that. And no, we're not going to have a pharisaical spirit. We're not going to try to dictate what the Holy Spirit is doing in people's lives because we know that man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. Now, and we want to be very careful we want to be dogmatic where the Lord is, and we want to give concessions where the Lord gives concessions. So if, if people aren't where we are spiritually, we don't want, well, they ought to stay in jail. And if they raised them in the church, they came to church, they never brought their kids to church. When's the last time you've seen their kids in church? I knew their marriage wasn't going to work, because if it was going to work, they would have come to some of these married couples' functions. Spirit of rain down fire, the Lord says, Let's go to the next town. If they don't welcome us here, we'll go somewhere else. And maybe grace and mercy will come to them and they will receive it the next time. That's the spirit of God that we should have. Here's the final thing. We need to be stripped of a spectator spirit. When you get a chance in verses 57 through 62, a man comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you go. And Christ said, well, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said, okay, <laughs> I'll catch you next time around, Jesus. <laughs> and then another man said, I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me go home and bury my dad first. Now, his dad wasn't even dead, probably wasn't sick. He's waiting for the inheritance. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. He's not saying don't, let, don't bury your father when he dies. But leave that dead life to get new life. And so he made an excuse. And the final guy said, well, let me go home and just say goodbye to my friends. And, and then when I finally got enough celebration to have a party here, get a trunk party there and a trunk party there, trunk party there. He said, no, 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 Jesus said, if you ever put your hands to the gospel plow and you take your hands off of you, make an excuse why you can't come to church, making an excuse why you can't grow in the Lord, making an excuse why you aren't becoming more and more like Jesus. He said, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You, we need to be stripped of some things. You're not a spec, stripped of spectators, a spirit. Come to church just to get. Boy, that was some great music. Oh, the, the pastor was terrible, but man, didn't we get a lot for it? Didn't we get a lot, Dad, for a nickel? Put a nickel in church and said, Lord, that was some great entertainment for a nickel. Spectators, search and destroy, sectarianism, spirit of superiority. This is a true story. Stand with me. 
A town in New Orleans was celebrating the fact that a whole year had passed and not one person had drowned in a public pool. So 200 guests were invited, and out of the 200 guests that were invited, 100 of them were certified lifeguards. It was front page news. Everybody was having, they had a live band. And it was just a ball. They had the greatest of food, and everybody's having a great time. And it was finally time to end the party, the celebration. No one had died in the entire year. And so as four lifeguards were clearing the pool for everyone to leave, they noticed a fully clothed man named Jerome Mason lying face down in the deep. He had drowned. A hundred certified lifeguards at the pool celebrating that no one had died and a man died right in their midst. We got a whole bunch of certified, fair, knowledgeable Christians. And, and, and we can tell you every book of the Bible. We can quote scripture. We can, we can call down fire from heaven. We can jump over three pews at the same time. We can moonwalk with Jesus and imagine walking on water. We can say, we got all. And yet the world around us is dying in sin. Drowning. And we fail to fulfill our assignment. What is our assignment? Make what is our assignment? I, I didn't hear you. What is our assignment? Amen. Let's pray.